You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. First John chapter 2. Appreciate you being here this morning. I know I've already said it, but we know we have some, it looks like we have some guests here today and uh, just grateful that, you, that you're here. Uh, we've been going through a series on 1 John chapter 2, uh, or 1 John, I should say, uh, and it's, we're calling it Family Traits, and we've been discussing uh, what John's letter and uh, what it, uh, you know, his goal in writing the letter was to write to God's family members. And in writing to God's family members to give them some signs that they're members of the family. And we're continuing that thought today. I, as I was preparing for this message, um, just because of something that we'll be getting into here in just a little bit, uh, I started thinking uh, about having someone on your side when you feel inadequate for a job or for a task. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of examples of this in my life, maybe because I've felt inadequate many different times in my life for different reasons. I remember as a kid, we lived, my dad was a pastor and we lived next door to the church. And there were times that my dad would, would send me over into the church to go get something for him. And inevitably, every time he sent me over to the church, what he needed was in the, in the basement at the very back of the building. You know where this is going, right? Now, as a child, your imagination runs wild. And, and I don't know many people that like the dark. As Christians, we're supposed to walk in light. So... It's okay to, you know, not like the dark. Sometimes as an adult, as a grown man, or even around this building at night, I hear noises that scare me a little bit. So if you can imagine as a child, my dad would send me over to the building and he'd say, I need this. It's in the basement. It's in the back of the building. And walking over there as a child uh, by myself was a test of faith. It was frightening. I mean, uh, you don't know what's around every corner. It's one of those things where you go... You turn on every light that you come across. And I remember doing that many times as a kid. My dad would send me over and and I would be afraid of what I'm not seeing in the dark. But I also can contrast that with the times that I would go over to the church building with my dad. And when I went to the building with my dad, we could walk in the same rooms. We could take the same path. And you know what? I never once felt afraid. Because I had my dad with me. Or maybe I could say I was with my dad. My dad was bigger. He was stronger. He was more equipped if ninja skills were required. I was not quite as afraid of being in the dark with my dad than I was when I was by myself. You know, it really makes a big difference when you have someone beside you that's better than you at something. I also remember uh, when we were building our house. Now, I'm not a builder, and so I know it sounds impressive to say, yeah, we built a house. Really, people would come and show me what to do, and I would do it until I could no longer do it, and then I would call somebody else. I have a brother-in-law who's very, very good at building, and, and he would come over and show me how to do a job and get started, and then I would work on it. It would take me about two weeks, and it should have taken me maybe three days, but I, hey, I got it done. When you have somebody by your side that knows what they're doing or, or is better than you at something or stronger than you, uh, more equipped than you, it sure does help you face situations you would otherwise not be able to face. Well, having someone beside you 
is very similar to the message that John is giving here in in chapter 2. When you have the right person on your side, there's always hope. And he begins the chapter with the words that shouldn't surprise us. He says, my little children, we're going to dissect these verses as we go and then get to the point here in just a little bit. That phrase should not surprise us. You know, this is a letter to family. John is writing these things, and he says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. So what things has he talked about? Well, so far, he's, he's, the family traits have been, well, we should have fellowship with God and with others, and as we have fellowship with God and with others, we have true joy. And then as we walk with the Lord, our life should reflect God's holiness. We walk in the light. We should have consistent confession of sins. These are all traits that we've already talked about in the series so far. John very clearly gives us his desire, though, in writing this letter here in this verse when he says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. That ye sin not. His purpose in writing the letter is that members of God's family would be like their father and live lives that are without sin. That they would have family traits and family members should reflect their father and there's no better reflection of our heavenly father than a child who lives a life free from sin. God is holy. We should be holy too. That's what John's telling him. So that's the first point here today is that members of the family shouldn't live in sin and there's a couple of reasons for that and the first one is, is because they're members of the family because they carry the family name I remember, again, I'm using my dad as illustrations a lot lately, but as a teenager, my father would often remind me as I left the house, he would say something like this, remember, you're a Jet. Remember, your last name is Jet. What was he saying? Well, he was saying, because you carry my last name, you need to behave in such a way that you reflect the things that are important to our family. You don't just get to go out and and live like you want and speak like you want and do whatever you want. You are carrying. Everywhere you go, you carry the name Jet with you. So the kind of things that came to my mind um, that I should reflect were things like, I'm going to use good language. That's what he was telling me. Without saying it, he was saying the things that are important to our family, do those things. So use good language. Don't go out and drink. Don't go out and smoke. Be selective of your friends. And if they're doing things that the Jets wouldn't do, you need to be careful of those friends. Maybe they shouldn't be your friends. He would, you know, when he said, go out because your last name is Jet, he was saying, represent the Lord because we try to represent the Lord in our family. He was saying, listen to music that honors God. He was saying, only go to places that I would go. So what was my dad asking me to do by reminding me of my name? He was asking me wherever I went to represent him. I was to represent the jet name every place I went. Wherever I was going that night or with my friends or every time I went to school, I was carrying, it was like a banner, carrying around the name jet wherever I went. So the places I went, people could see my name or see his name and assume, well, that's okay for the jets then. The values that had importance in my household were to be represented whether or not my parents were around. And children, teenagers in here, it's a good rule for you as well. You'll eventually get to the point where your parents don't have to stand over your shoulder all the time because you will grow in maturity enough that they don't have to be there telling you what to do at every turn. 
Well, once you get it, you say, well, why don't my parents trust me? Well, you have to earn their trust by proving that you do what they want you to do when they're not around. That's what my, ask, my dad was asking me to do. He was, my father, here's what he was doing. He was looking for a representative. He wanted me to represent his name in a, in a way that would please the, fa- or please the Lord and, and bring honor to the name Jet. Now, I hate to admit that he didn't always have a good representative in me. I wish I could say differently, but there were times where I did not represent the family name like I should have. But he did often, though, remind me that I was supposed to represent him accurately. Whether or not I did, I knew I was supposed to. And one thing about this is it wasn't about a position. My, my dad was a pastor my whole childhood. But he never, whenever I was leaving, he never said, you're going out and because you're a pastor's kid, you need to behave. That puts a lot of undue pressure on a kid. And I'm thinking about it with my own children even now. I don't want to get to the place where I say, well, you're the pastor's children, therefore you should perform. Because it's not about being the pastor's child, it's about being God's child. And you can have high expectations for my children. That's perfectly fine with us. We want high expectations for our children. But don't have high expectations for them just because they're pastor's kids. Have high expectations of them because they're God's children. And that means that the same expectations you would place on pastor's children, you should place on your own children. Because they're children of God. And not past, my dad never made it about the fact that he has a position. It's not about a position. Is it, about, it is about the relationship. It is, it is about who I am. We all ought to represent our Father whenever we go out, wherever we are. We should always represent our Father in heaven because we're His children. There should be something distinctly holy and sin-free about our lives because that's how our Father is. So members of the family shouldn't live in sin because they carry the family name, but also, too, because they've been given the power to live without sin. See, John would not uh, tell us to do something that isn't possible See, he knew that every child of God has the opportunity to live without sin because Christ gives us the power to live without sin. He says, these things write unto I unto you that you sin not. And first, a quick definition of sin. It can be found in chapter 3, verse 4. It says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So based on John's own definition... When we transgress or we break God's law, that's sin. You say, well, I haven't done that. Well, we all have sinned. The Bible says every person. We've all broken God's law. Each of us has missed the mark. But what John is saying is we don't have to. He's saying, I'm writing these things that ye sin not. You don't have to live in bondage to sin. According to John, the things he was writing were were, were knowledge that the family needed to live sin free. That's what truth does. John 8, Jesus Christ said, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, two things to know about truth and freedom. Truth enables us to have victory over sin. See, according to Romans 6, we could go, we're not going to turn there this morning, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us power over sin. We don't have to live in bondage to sin. If you're having trouble with a sin in your life, if you're having trouble and you're a child of God, if you're having trouble gaining victory over sin in your life, go to Romans 6 and just be reminded of things that are true. Because according to Romans 6, 
Uh, Paul wrote, there are things we have to know before we can have victory. We have to know that we are dead to sin through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved have been crucified with Christ. Our old man, that sin nature, was placed on the cross with Christ and killed when Jesus died on that cross. I don't know how it works. I just know that's what Romans 6 says. We were crucified with Christ. Over there in Romans 6, verse 6, it says that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth from here on out we should not serve sin. So the Bible says in Romans 6 that it's possible to live in such a way that we don't have to be in bondage to sin, then I believe it. He also says over there in verse 7, he that is dead is freed from sin. Like a slave that has been set free, we have been set free from the penalty and power of sin. And you may say, well, this doesn't seem right to me. I'm always struggling with sin. I'm in bondage to sin. There are these things that I know are in my life that should not be in my life. And it, I know how it feels. I've been there myself. I'm there at times myself. But let me just tell you, according to the Bible, you do not have to serve sin. Your sin nature was crucified with Jesus Christ on that cross. And he that is dead is freed from sin. We're like slaves that have been set free, but very often we choose to still remain in bondage. See, the following verses over in Romans 6 then talk about how Jesus Christ rose from the dead and it confirms his power over sin. So he buried it and he rose from the dead. We have victory over sin. The point is, what I'm trying to tell you this morning, in a nutshell, is I'm trying to say that we are members of the family. If we are members of the family and we still serve sin, it is a choice that we make we do not have to serve sin. Paul's saying you've been set free. You might not know it, but so here's truth that you can be free. And, and then John is saying the same thing. I write these things that you sin not. So you say, okay, well, it's done then. I have victory over sin. The work is over. Everything's great. Well, unfortunately, no. Paul's point in Romans 6 was you have to make a choice. You, get to, you have to choose who will be your master. John's point in 1 John is you don't have to serve sin. You have an option. Unfortunately, another point about truth and freedom is even though it's available to us, we can override truth by our choices. It's available to us. It's like money in the bank account that we very often choose not to spend. The resources are there. The power is there. Victory over sin is there. But we can override truth by our choices. We have all the power of God available to us in defeating sin and having victory over it, but because God doesn't remove our sin nature, we still have a choice to make. I mean, I think about Paul and what he said in Romans 7, for the good that I would, I do not, and the evil which I would not, that I do. Here's Paul, one of the great Christians in all of church history, and he struggled with his sin nature. Who am I to think I won't have to battle it every day? Who am I to think I don't have to battle my sin nature Every moment, every instant, every choice that I make, I have to fight against my sin nature. And unfortunately, even as longtime members of the family, we often struggle with our choice to represent our Father because we want to live or we choose to live in sin. So I want to carry on. That's kind of what he's talking about in, in the first part of the verse and you know, writing to them that they don't have to sin. And, and then he carries on to the next point. I've already said... I didn't always represent my dad like he would have wanted me to. I, I regret that, that for sure. I, re, I regret that there were times that my dad sent me out to represent his name and I didn't represent it well. There were times and my dad would find out and, 
and we would have a family talk. You know how family talks are? But I would see in his face a very serious disappointment. And that disappointment was very often the very thing that drove me almost to despair and feeling regret and feeling terrible about myself because I had never felt so unworthy about my uh, shortcomings than when I failed to represent the name Jet as like I should have. I would choose sin instead of representation and I would be so defeated about it and I would feel so bad that he was disappointed in me And I remember very strongly feeling that way. There have been times even as an adult that I should represent the Lord like I'm supposed to and yet I fail and I I feel terrible. The shortcoming is there and I would feel so defeated about it. But you know, we can get that way as well when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. We're told not to sin. We're told we have victory over sin. We're told that we have power to overcome sin. But the struggle, struggle overtakes us at times, doesn't it? We very often give in to that sin nature. We submit to the wrong master and that leads us to John's next point and this is what I want to focus on today and that is when we do sin, don't lose hope. When we do sin, don't lose hope. Now, members of the family should not sin but members of the family will sin and when we do sin, don't lose hope. He said if any man sin, Here's why you shouldn't lose hope. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, even if we don't represent our Father, we always, we always have a representative. He may send us out and say, represent my name. Live in such a way that you're not sinning. Represent me to the world. And we may not always do that. We may often fail at that. But one thing that we can be for certain of is that we always, though, have a representative on our side. Like my dad walking through the basement with me. There's always someone more qualified. There's always someone stronger. There's always someone more righteous. There's always someone better than me representing me to the Father. What does that mean? Well, as we get into it, this is a continuation of the thought. Don't deny sin. Because we will sin. And we'll choose to serve the wrong master. And unfortunately, we won't always represent the name or the family name all that well. And some people, according to 1 John, we've already talked about this, they will sin and then they'll deny it. So they'll they'll sin and they'll say, oh, I have no sin, and they'll lie to everybody else. And then they'll, they'll, they'll sin and then they'll deny it, and they'll lie to everyone so much that they start to believe it themselves. They start to lie to themselves. And then they'll say they'll sin and then they'll deny it even more till they get to the point where they make God a liar. So that's one response to sin, is that sin is present, but we deny it. Well, what John is dealing with here is the second response to sin. See, the first response was denial, and what he's dealing with now in verse 2, it is, is verse 1, I should say, is no longer denial. Now he's talking about desperation. You know, John is dealing with those that are so defeated by their failure that they lose hope. I remember one of our children uh, in her early years struggling so much with disobedience. I mean, you could probably guess who it is, but I'm not going to give you any hints. It rhymes with Casey, okay? Lacey. Lacey has a sin nature that she, that is, I mean, it is, it's a big deal. I mean, she's always in our family known as the one who struggles the most. Now, she's sweet as can be. But when she's unmonitored, 
bad things happen. Maybe you have one like maybe you have one like that at your house. So I remember one time dealing with Lacey and in taking her to her room and and she was being punished for disobedience and and uh, we we practice spanking. It's in the Bible. It's not abuse. It's trying to help her um, to to see that her heart needs to be adjusted, and it works. It's like I said. It's in the Bible. It's biblical punishment. And if it ever gets to the point of abuse, we are in danger. Don't abuse. But you can use a rod to help a child's heart be steered back toward you. And I remember one time dealing with Lacey and, and we were talking. I said, Lacey, why do you struggle so much? Why do you struggle with disobedience so much? And she's just crying and tears are coming down. She's a great repenter. Tears are coming down her face and she said, I don't know why I struggle. It's so hard. I don't think I'm ever going to get it right. Of course, then, you know, I helped, helped her through that and helped her to see that there is victory over sin. And Jesus Christ gives us the power over sin. If we choose it, the choice is ours. I struggle so badly, I'll never get it right. You know, we can get that way. Our failure can defeat us and put us in the frame of mind that we lose hope that we'll ever get it right. And I read John MacArthur said about sin that sin waits to attack every baby born into the world at conception. Sin rules every human heart and intends to damn every soul to an eternal hell. Sin turned beauty into ugly deformity. And the sinner is more concerned to cover his sin than to have to have it cured. He is more eager to excuse it than to admit it and seek a solution. You say, well, that's real pleasant, Pastor. Thank you for those encouraging words. You know, I read that because sin feels hopeless. And maybe you haven't been there. I've been there before. Sin feels hopeless. And the bondage to sin makes you feel like there's no way out of it. You've tried and failed over and over and it seems like it'll never get better. It's hard to have hope. And through tears you say, I'll never get it right. Sin is powerful and it has no intention of easing up on you. Your whole life, as long as you're alive, sin will be there. And I know that's not a popular message in today's pulpits, but I'm just telling you, it's in the Bible. Sin must be dealt with. We all struggle with it, and popular or not, it's something we all must face. No, it binds every human, and it binds you, and it binds me. We probably find it easier to hide or excuse it than to actually gain victory over it. It is easier to hide or excuse. Have you ever felt like Paul? No good I would, I do not, I just can't get it right. Have you ever felt like Peter who went out and wept at his failures when he said, I'm going to be strong? Do you ever feel hopeless because of your sin even right now? Well, the message that John is giving is saying, don't despair because you have hope. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have somebody on our side walking through that dark basement that can help us to know that even if we mess up, it it could be okay again. Now, don't forget, as I go through this, he's talking, he says, my little children. He's talking to members of the family. He's not just saying this is a blanket statement for every person out there. No, he's talking to a very specific demographic here. He's talking to members of the family. So if you are saved as a child of God, this applies to you. If you sit in here under the sound of my voice this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, there are other things that you have to deal with first that you must understand. This applies to a father-child relationship today. John says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
Listen, Jesus Christ is our advocate. The Greek word for advocate is um, parakletos, which means summoned. It means called to one's side or called to one's aid. He's calling along and saying, I need your help here. Hey, come help me here. I need you. It means one who pleads another's cause before a judge. It's like counsel for defense. It's like a legal assistant. So what this is saying is that Jesus Christ operates as our defense before God the judge. So when we sin, Jesus Christ comes along beside us and pleads our cause before God the judge. That's what he's literally doing. So what qualifies Jesus Christ? Well, verse 1 says... Uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that simply means that Christ, even though he was born into a body and he walked in flesh on this earth, that he, that he never sinned. He's not guilty. Even if we're guilty, he's not. He's righteous before God. He can stand before God with a clear conscience. He never in any way acted against God's law. He has access to the judge as his father that no one else does. He's very qualified for this position. What else does it mean? What else qualifies him? Well, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does propitiation mean? Here we go using big words. Well, propitiation is the idea of appeasing someone. Propitiation is the act of appeasing an offended person's wrath and restoring favor. It's like a mediator. It's someone who, who steps in and intercedes and, 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 and maybe you know, talks someone down or or, or does negotiations with someone who, who is, uh, who's holding someone else ransom. I mean, when someone's upset or, or full of wrath, it's someone who steps in and appeases them. Well, in theology, a propitiation is the atonement or atoning sacrifice offered to God to soothe his wrath and bring sinners back into favor with God. So Christ is the propitiation or appeasement for the sins of men before God. Now we're going to get into some details. I don't want you to lose focus. We'll, we'll come around and begin applying it here in a minute. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. See, our default is that we are sinners, and then in our sinful state, we are unbelievers. And because of that, the Bible says that God's wrath abides on us. We are children of wrath. That's our default setting because of our sin. Now, the, that verse in John 3 said, though, but if we believe, then that means we have the Son of God and the wrath of God no longer abides on us. So believing on Jesus Christ, receiving his gift of salvation, means that God removes his wrath from us. And you say, well, God's a wrathful God? I mean, what, what do you mean by that? So he's just angry? No, when we think of wrath or we think of anger, we often think of it anger in terms of the human condition. And usually when I'm angry, it's, angry, it's not for a righteous reason. Usually when I'm angry, it's because someone has offended me or someone has done something I didn't want them to do or they got in my way or it's my pride. Usually my anger is unrighteous anger. Well, God's anger is never unrighteous. God's anger, his wrath, is not on sinners because he hates the sinner. It's on sinners because he hates the sin. And in his holy condition, in his perfection, in his light, he has to deal justly with sin. So he has wrath on us. 
When we break God's law, His perfect justice demands that we pay for our sins. That's the nature of His wrath. But according to this verse, Jesus Christ is the way to appease God's wrath toward sinners. He's our propitiation. Over in 1 John chapter 4, it says, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, that's pretty amazing. So here we are. We have a judge, and we stand guilty before that judge. We have sinned. We have broken His law. But we have a propitiation. We have someone to step come alongside us and plead our case for us. But it's not just some guy off the street. The judge actually sent the propitiation to stand with us. That's how much God wants to restore a sinner. Amen. There's a lot of people that say, well, God's a wrathful God, and he hates people, and he just wants to destroy people. No, the very thing God needed to atone for sins was what he sent in the form of his own son. He wants a restored relationship. He wants his wrath to be appeased. He doesn't want to apply his wrath to us, so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to step alongside of us and be our appeasement. Well, how does this process work? Well, I think I'm going to need some volunteers today, some, some involuntary volunteers. You're sitting here looking so respectful, so I'm going to, need, I'm going to have you come up here, Brother Carlos. Come up here to the, to the platform. Just come on up. I know this isn't very fun. I'm going to let you uh, stand here on this side, and you can be the guilty one. That's fitting, huh? I need someone to be the judge. Let's have Carlos's dad come up here and be the judge. So, Brother Carlos, I'm going to have you stand over on this side, and Brother Juan on this side, Brother Carlos on this side. So we have three people involved in this process here today. We have the judge, and he represents the law. He represents, in our story, at least in our passage, he represents God the Father who is the judge. On this side over here, we have the guilty party. And he represents someone who has broken the law. And just for sake of convenience, I will represent the defense lawyer. Okay? Now, don't, don't attribute the characteristics of a lawyer to me today, okay? Be nice to me. But you have these three people. You have the judge, you have the advocate, the counsel, the defense lawyer, and then you have the guilty party. So let's just say, for, for sake of our scenario today, that there is a law that says texting and driving is, a, well, it's against the law. And there is a law that says that. But in our scenario today... The, the, the penalty for texting and driving is extremely severe. In our penalty today, the, 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 or in our scenario today, the penalty for texting and driving is either a $100 million fine or life in prison. And I'm using it today because um, I had an encounter with someone texting and driving this week, and so it's really on my heart today, so I'm using it, Okay. There's some poor lady in Oklahoma City that's still wondering why she got the stare down from some guy in a suburban. Well, there's a very severe penalty for texting and driving in our scenario, and that is a $100 million fine or life in prison. Now, Carlos was driving along, and he was texting and driving, which his parents would definitely tell him not to do. And in texting and driving, he accidentally ran a school bus full of children off the road into a ditch. Now, no one was hurt, but it was very clear what happened. 
the policemen came, they saw what had happened, they checked his phone, they knew that he had been texting and driving, so they arrested him on the spot. So now Carlos has to come and stand before the judge, which this is probably a pretty familiar scenario with you having your dad here. So Carlos steps into the courtroom and and the law says, well, it's either $100 million or life in prison. Um, The judge says, you're guilty of texting and driving. Uh, you've, You've been charged with texting and driving. How do you plead? And Carlos would say, guilty. So say guilty. He's guilty. It's very obvious. The policeman saw it. The school bus full of children saw it. The driver saw it. There were other witnesses standing. They're in the room right there. They're saying he's guilty. So the judge says, okay, well, the, the, the penalty for your crime is $100 million or life in prison. And then he asked, probably knowing the answer, do you have $100 million to pay your fine? And then Carlos would have to say, no, sir, I do not. No, I, I do not. Right. I mean, some of us may have $100 million. Carlos doesn't. He's just a high schooler. So the, the judge says then, your punishment then is life in prison since you don't have the money. The judge says, then you have to spend life in prison. And he's about to bang his gavel down on the table when suddenly the defense lawyer steps in and says, wait, 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 judge. Come stand, come stand right here by me. Wait, judge, because he comes alongside, remember? He says, hold on, judge. Um, I know that he's guilty. He's already admitted his guilt. You know that he's guilty. The witnesses say he's guilty. Everyone in the scenario says that he's guilty. He stands before you guilty. He even admits it. And I know he's guilty too, sir. But we know that I am a very rich man. And $100 million is actually something that I could pay. So I want you to know, judge, that I have deposited $100 million into the proper accounts to pay the fine that Carlos owes for driving and texting. And the judge says, well then... Because the penalty has been paid, then I will allow Carlos to walk away free. He slams his gavel down and he says, paid in full. Now, I know that's, that's kind of a strange scenario and that's not the way it really works. If you want to know how it really works, watch Judge Judy or Law and Order or something. Let, that's real life. No, but this is a picture of what Christ does for sinners. You see, we have broken God's law. We stand guilty before God. The judge is holy. His law is perfect. There's no way that we could pay for our sins. A hundred million dollars, I don't have that kind of money. Not only that, but the Bible says that we have an accuser that sits in the courtroom. His name is Satan. And he says, he's guilty. I saw him do it. I watched the whole thing. He's guilty as charged, Your Honor. So we know we're guilty The judge knows we're guilty. There's an accuser saying we're guilty. But let me just remind you, we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney. He's an advocate, and he paid all of our fines on the cross. And so he goes before the judge, and he presents his portfolio. He says, no, look at my qualifications, judge. He says, look at my portfolio. Jesus Christ says, here's a picture of the cross. And here's a picture of me dying on the cross. Look at the blood coming out of my hands. Look at the blood coming from my side and my feet. Look at the cross, judge. I paid for his sins. I have whatever it takes to pay for the crimes that he's committed. 
Look at my portfolio, judge. Look, this is where I was buried. But I want you to notice on this page, three days later, the stone is gone. My body is gone. I rose from the dead. I paid for the sins. I rose from the dead and can give victory to anybody that will accept it. So our defense attorney goes to the judge and declares his case as being someone that can pay for the sins of the, crime, of the guilty. And the judge looks at this, the defense lawyer's portfolio and says, I can't argue with that. Slams the gavel down, says paid in full. Christ is our propitiation. Be up here just a couple more minutes. Christ is our propitiation. When we sin, he, he on our behalf, he comes beside us and then he goes to the judge and he pleads our case for us, but not with empty hands. He pleads them with scars. He pleads them with blood. He pleads them with a portfolio that is unmatched by any other defense attorney out there. And he says, listen, I prayed the price. And he looks at the accuser, Satan, sitting over here. And he says, just shut up, Satan. Maybe I shouldn't use that word in church. I'm sorry. That's the way I imagine it. He says, Satan, the accuser, close your mouth. Because I've paid his, his debt in full. Listen, if Carlos was to simply plead and confess his sins all on his own, would he have anything to take to the judge to, to convince the judge to let him walk away free? Absolutely not. But we have a faithful advocate who has died for us and forgives our sins, took care of all of it. And I'm thankful for it. But I want to ask you this, what does the picture look like without that advocate? I mean, I'm just going to step out of the way and just let you, let you use your imagination here. You have God the judge, and he is holy, and he's perfect, and, and he, demands a, a perfect, a, a, he demands a perfect keeping of the law to please him, which is not something we could do. Then you have the guilty, and he stands guilty before God, and let's say in this scenario that he has not honored his father and mother, which is one of the Ten Commandments. So if he doesn't honor his father and mother, he has broken God's law and he stands guilty before the judge. And the judge says, I find you guilty of the fifth commandment of breaking that law. You did not honor your father and your mother. What do you have to say for yourself? And Carlos says, I'm guilty. And the accuser over here says, he's guilty. I saw the whole thing. He didn't honor his father and mother. And the judge says, do you have $100 million or do you have... Can you pay for your sins? Uh, uh, he says the wages of sin is death. So uh, my, my, uh, my demand for justice requires that someone die on your behalf to forgive you of this sin. And, and, and Brother Juan says, do you have someone that has died on your behalf? And Carlos looks around the room. And there's no advocate. There's no defense attorney. There's no one saying, wait, 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 I can pay it for him. No, all the only sound that you hear when the judge says, well, I find you guilty, you can't pay for your crime. The only sounds you hear are Satan over in the witness stand saying he's guilty, charge him, send him to death. And then the cries of the guilty begging for mercy, begging for just something to happen that would allow him to walk away free. But there's nobody to stand in for him. There's nobody to offer pay it, to pay it for him because the law requires death. He must die himself. It's the only option. And I just want you to consider how hopeless it would be 
if we didn't have an advocate with our Father. How desperate it would be if we could not find a way to have our sins forgiven. We would be desperate. And that's what John is telling them. Thank you, man, I appreciate it. That's what John is telling those that he's writing to. He's telling the little children, listen, you don't have to be desperate. You can have hope because you've got someone that stands by your side and he takes his portfolio, which are the wounds in his hands and his, and his head and his side and his feet, and he shows the, the judge the blood and says, look what I have done to pay for the sins of your child. We would have no hope of having sins forgiven. We would have no hope even of eternal life. We would have no hope of fellowship with the Father if we did not have the advocate, his son. We would be destined to feel the full effects of sin. You know, considering uh, you know, that this life with our advocate is so full of joy and so full of hope, but how many people choose to live as if they had no advocate? They choose to live with their sins piling up on each other in desperation, thinking there's no way out, there's no hope, and the pile gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. But listen, child of God, when you sin, it's not over. It doesn't mean it's okay because sin is terrible and we shouldn't use it as an excuse to sin. Sin has awful consequences. But if you're part of the family, don't live in sin. You don't have to. But when you do, you can have hope because you have someone very qualified representing you to the judge. Because we have an advocate, we can be confident our sins will not be held against us. Christ's advocacy gives us the opportunity for fellowship and joy and to be a normally functioning member of the family, even if we blow it. Our advocate gives us hope. Jesus Christ, the third and final and short point then, is that Jesus Christ wants everyone to have that hope. It says there at the end of verse 2, not for ours only, he's the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus Christ is not just your personal lawyer. He gave himself to represent everybody. And for those that say there's a limited atonement, that Jesus Christ only died for a few, no, he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That means there's a free court-appointed defense advocate named Christ who can go before God, the most important judge, and plead perfectly every time. He's never lost a case. And he can represent everyone. He wants to be your advocate this morning. And for some of you, you don't have an advocate because you've never received Christ as your Savior and you literally stand guilty and in danger of death before God because you've broken His law. This morning, you can receive Christ as your Savior and have an advocate that will never leave your side again. So why don't you make that decision? For those of you that are children of God, the reason that you don't have an advocate is because you choose not to utilize him. It would be like saying, you know, the state gives you, you have a state uh, appointed attorney and you decline it and say, I'll take care of this myself. No, he wants to be your advocate. Your only hope to be free from the penalty of sin 
comes when you utilize your advocate. It's good to know. So how do you apply it? Well, don't live in sin. That's first. He represents you faithfully. Listen, the least you could do is represent him faithfully. What, what if he represented you only as faithfully as you represent him? The second application is when you do sin, don't despair. Because you have an advocate on your side and it gives you hope. So make full use of that God-appointed advocate. Allow him to do the job he's promised to provide for his children. Third, the third application is tell the world about the advocate. Because that means that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sins and also for the sins of the whole world. It means your neighbors, Jesus Christ is their propitiation too. Your friends, he's their propitiation too. Your family, tell them about it. That they have an advocate with the Father. Sin does not have to lead us to despair. And fourth, have hope. You have an advocate. You have someone on your side that's stronger and wiser and more equipped and completely qualified to represent you before the judge. Are you making use of the advocate that you have in Christ? Are you trying it on your own? Are you letting your sins stack up? Have you grown in desperation because of your sin? Well, if so, let me just remind you again, Jesus Christ is standing by your side. And he's done everything required to take that payment to the judge and plead your cause. You have to simply let him do his work. All you have to say is I'm guilty. And he takes care of the rest. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to have every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.